1: everyone and welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval by History Hit. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and today I've left my little DIY recording studio at home because I've been invited to visit a very special medieval church. It's in a place you've probably never heard of, a small village called Steeple Ashton in Wiltshire. But it's a church that's been described as one of the finest perpendicular churches in the country. will get back to what a perpendicular church is in a moment. But it really is quite extraordinary. And it's also home to some of my favourite things, a group of medieval hunky punks. And if you don't know what they are, you will find out very soon. I'm here because I've been invited by expert stonemason Andrew Zeminski, not just to learn about the church, but also to find out what a medieval stonemason actually did because Andrew is the author of the book The Stonemason, A History of Building Britain drawing on his own career over 30 years working on some of the country's most incredible historic buildings from Neolithic monoliths and Roman baths to medieval cathedrals and mills of the Industrial Revolution so he's one of the very few people to really know the ins and outs of buildings like this so I'm here now today because Andrew is actually working on this church and he's invited me to see some of the really quite unique aspects of its history. Right, so here we are. Andrew, thank you so much for inviting me along. It's really brilliant to be here. Thanks for taking part in the podcast.
2: Well, Kat, thank you ever so much for coming up to see us at uh, Steeple Ashton in Wiltshire.
1: So we just standing outside the church right now and it really is quite spectacular i mean i saw the pictures of it but driving up here through this beautiful sort of middle of nowhere countryside you come to a lovely little village and then you got this which really i mean it described as one of the finest perpendicular churches in the country can you first of all just explain what a perpendicular church is
2: well the perpendicular is the end of one of the sort of three orders of gothic architecture which you could argue starts with the Normans with the Romanesque era, and then it goes to the early English, the Decorated Period, and the Perpendicular. So that came around as a consequence of the Black Death, that so many people had died that there was huge amounts of cash sloshing around. Money was bequeathed to build churches, and this is typical of that sort of church. So this was thrown up in the 1480s, so you you can imagine news of the battle of bosworth you know coming here as the builders were building this place that we can see now and this would have, of course been a very busy place there would have been stonemasons working there would have been carpenters they would have been casting bells you know this would have been a massive construction site as were many parishes all over britain at that time
1: and this part that's Ashton, on this part of the country was actually quite wealthy for various reasons as well wasn't it in the middle ages it wasn't just the fact that you had this money coming in after the black death but before that as well what was the wealth coming from here in the middle of nowhere
2: well that's a really great question so you know we're in prime pasture land here salty plain rises just over there and that would have been absolutely chock full of sheep so it's well-to-do merchants that paid for this and as we walk around the interior of the church you can see some of their merchant's marks so they commissioned the works so this is a sort of new middle-class gentry that was paying for this you know it wasn't just the, the landed gentry you know it was the middle class whatever middle class meant in the middle ages of course
1: yeah so very much the sort of wool and textile industry that's kicking this off i suppose
2: exactly yeah exactly
1: So let's um, have another look at the church then and later on we are going to talk about these things I'm looking at right now which is one of the main reasons I wanted to come here apart from obviously the interesting story of the whole church which are these hunky punks that we are going to talk about a bit later on but let's go and have a look inside the church
2: Great
1: Oh wow Oh yes, it's a lovely church
2: We've not ventured beyond this point, have we? Um...
1: Let's go and have a look yeah, this really is not what you're expecting in the middle of a village like this. Tell me what we're looking at.
2: OK, so as we've already said, this is a church, strictly perpendicular church. It's one of the most important perpendicular churches around in southern England, I would say. I mean, to have a vaulted ceiling of this quality in a rural parish like this is really, really unusual. I mean, Steve Ashton is quite a small place now, but... 16 years after it was built, the village burnt to the ground, and that completely affected the nature of trade and settlement within the village. So everything was rebuilt, but all the merchants moved to nearby Bradford-upon-Avon. Curiously, Bradford-upon-Avon is where all the stone came from that built this place, so it's about 10, 12 miles away. But you can identify particular quarries as you walk around. I mean, outside you may have seen the stones rather sort of marbled and veiny, but look around in here. Look at these beautiful piers of this arcade. It's wonderfully smooth, well-bedded stone. So they're selecting their stone for you know different aesthetic and technical purposes, really.
1: And so, how much of what we're looking at now is original? So I noticed this has got a, a what is it? Oak ceiling here. Yeah. It's not a stone vaulted yeah, ceiling here.
2: Completely unusual. So this is a, a Leon vault and it's unusual because the church that we're looking at is all stone apart from the springing point of the arch you just see where these columns rise up and between the clear street windows the stonework splays out and then it transitions into oak and i think the reasoning for that is that they ran out of money (laughs) Ah <laughs> I couldn't afford a stone vault. And that is often you know, it's often the case when we're working on a parish church now, we get to a certain stage and all of a sudden the parish said, Look, we're just clean out of cash. So oak was a cheaper option. Originally it would have been highly decorated. So I think that this whole church would have been highly decorated and you wouldn't have been able to distinguish between what was oak and what was stone.
1: Oh that's an interesting point. But really I mean you do get the sense that this must have been incredibly expensive. Oh. To
2: build. Oh my goodness me! Yeah, it would—it would have taken a vast proportion of the merchants' income to pay for this. Uh, the merchants paid for the aisles, which are, we can see to the left and the right of us, and the parish paid for the nave. So you're more working people, you know. But they would have paid—not necessarily in cash. They would have paid in labour. So to construct this, there would have been a skilled team of master craftspeople, a few labourers, and then the village would have provided the grunt simple as that. So, you know, getting stone up is no easy task. But if everyone in the village is coming together, job done, isn't it? So with the chancel, that would have been paid for by the historic landed gentry. So the development of this church is that there was probably a Saxon church here. There's no evidence of it. And the first recorded mentioning of the church here is in the 1230s. But there's nothing here of that church left apart from when we go up the stair tower we'll see bits of old stone that have been reincorporated in which always i find quite exciting so the only early part of the church that would have been left is the chancel which would have been 13th century this is a victorian replacement of what was there before and the tower would have been constructed before the nave and the aisles that we can see now so there would have been a period where there's been this whopping great tower standing on its own all this would have been A construction site and the chancel would have been used for services there'd probably been a temporary structure temporary roof a thatch roof over here to keep services going for the locals
1: so that i suppose explains really well you know how they're getting this wealth and i love this idea that it's sort of almost a community effort with all the different levels well not all but many different levels of society actually contributing to it but I mean, this is a, an unfair question. But why? <laughs> That's the other question. Why are you spending all that money here? Is it to sort of show off the wealth? Yeah, exactly. Is that what it's it is?
2: it's to outdo the next parish, you know. So these new merchant millionaires could say to their neighbours, "Oh, look, we've you know, as oligarchs do today, you know, yeah. uh, when they're investing in museums or what have you."
1: And they've done it really well, haven't they?
2: And of course, to the glory of God, most important.
1: Well, of course, yes. There's yeah. that too. Fantastic. that was a key in the door. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, show me a bit more of this church, then. What else is here?
2: OK, well, it's absolutely chock-full of items of interest, but I'm going to take you to my favourite part, which not many people know about. And it's a place that many parishes would have had up until the time of the Reformation.
1: Oh, my goodness, so we've just come to this tiny little door in the side, the big iron key, and it says... Samuel Hay Library. Yeah. So there's a little staircase going up.
2: It smells nice, doesn't
1: it? It does. It smells old. Yeah,
2: old, musty <laughs> manuscripts. Oak. Wow. Stone. So
1: this, this is incredible. So this winding staircase, stone staircase, another door.
2: Another door. Oh, my word, look at this. Yeah. There's no lighting in here. We've got an air conditioning unit in just to preserve the books. So Samuel Hay, whose image you can see on the back there, was a vicar here in the 19th century. And he was a great collector of books. And uh, there was a collection of books from the late 16th century that he was given. And he kept them at the rectory. But when he retired, he presented a sum of money to the parish to pay for this charming library that we've got here. It's lovely. I just
1: described describe it. it's just a tiniest little room with a sort of timber beamed ceiling, and there's a cabinet along one wall, yeah. just filled with old
2: books. Yeah.
1: And what are they?
2: Well, like I say, there's no lighting here, so I'm putting my torch phone on. Let's take a random... The smaller ones are the best. What's this? So this is a like a paperback-sized book. Does that say Thurza Smith?
1: Anna, somebody as well. Huh?
2: Yeah. Astronomy is the science of looking up.
1: <laughs> Incredible. Oh, I
2: like that. You love yeah.
1: that. It's true.
2: Yeah. And the book is Natural Philosophy, in which the elements of that science are familiarly, familiarly, can you say that? Ex- <laughs> explained. 1829. So this is one of the more recent books they've got. I mean, when I come up here, I just pick up a, a random book and have a little thumb through just to, you know, there is. Inscriptions from the original owners. There was a book I was looking at the other day, and it says Mary Wells, her mark, her book, and it's ah. just a cross in that nice old copperplate writing that the vicar has written for her. That's
1: fantastic. So I mean, so this really shows that the link between the church and also about knowledge and books and, and reading, yes. and you know, these aren't just religious places, but there's actually people here who are very much. Seeking knowledge as well yes. of the natural world, which yes. I think that book especially demonstrates, yeah, but
2: well, it just indicates what a hub of the community the church was it 's not just for prayer and thought, you know these are marketplaces these are where contracts were exchanged, these are where you know books are borrowed and um, read, and you know places of learning this was a schoolroom. you get married here, you get dispatched here you know it 's like it 's absolutely everything of the community, and the community here in St Marys are you know very much like that they 've been very supportive to us in our works, and they even bring us cakes so
1: perfect, what else yeah, do you need
2: yeah.
1: tiny li- library up uh, a staircase and uh, <laughs> cake
2: but this space is also known as a vase which is where uh, parish meetings were conducted, so to have a surviving library is is rather unusual, but this is where all the parish affairs were conducted, but I rather like the idea you know that window's been there since the 1480s you know the archway beneath us into the body of the church is a tudor arch so you know like i say news of the battle of bosworth could you know you could have been sat here and seen that news brought to us through those windows
1: it's really absolutely amazing it's just proper proper history proper part of history isn't it yeah
2: yeah fantastic brilliant i never tire of these places
1: No, no, absolutely, and you get some special privilege. We're going to talk about your work in a moment because you're very fortunate to get access to some places that people would never normally see.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't earn any money, really. (laughs) I just end up doing it for love. We, We do bridges, we do medieval bridges and churches. We always earn a little bit more money on bridges, and that helps us to pay for the churches. So I'm I'm writing a second book, and I've written a large proportion of it right here. Oh, in this room? Yeah, yeah. Rosemary, the church warden who we met earlier, she she said, yeah, that's fine. Just use it when you want. So, yeah, I've been churning out the words.
1: Fantastic! I can't yeah. think of a better place to Shouldn't write a book. Could be more
2: atmospheric, could it? We
1: should start writing retreats up here. Oh, I'll let you I'll let you go first. Okay. Then. Right. So back down the winding staircase. <clears throat>
2: So, <laughs> shall we go onto the roof now and uh, have a look at the hunky-punks and some of the work we've been doing and the medieval clock? That sounds awesome. Yes, please. So, it's another doorway. I've just unlocked this one. So, same one-key-fits-all here.
1: love these. Doors. And how old are these doors? Are they
2: um, quite ancient well, too? I, I think this is a Victorian replacement or a copy of what was there before. But the main church doors through the porch are original, tremendously exciting.
1: So original, as in 15th century?
2: Yep. Yeah, 15th century woodwork. I Amazing. Mean, um, yeah, so that means the metal work 15th century. So these steps going up here are tiny. <laughs> OK. And look out for the... Uh, what some people refer to as witch marks for trapping witches coming down this spiral staircase. OK, yeah. There are... Um, Colonies of ladybirds up there, hibernating over the winter. And as I say, tiny, tiny steps. And it's going to be oh, quite snowy up the top. Oh my so, word! Isn't it? Yeah,
1: hold on. One to one your, more narrow, doesn't
2: it? Hold oh, on yeah. to your socks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the things I do for this podcast. Right, another doorway.
2: Now yeah, there's a really loose stone right above our head. I've got to fix. Of course. Okay. You see that big one there? With the daylight through
1: it. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay,
2: So um, don't want that on my head. <laughs> oh wow. So we're up on the roof of the baptistry, but we'll go onto the uh, south aisle roof. we have got to climb under our scaffolding. clamber up this awkward step onto
1: the lead.
2: Onto the lead roof,
1: yeah. Um, Oh, wow, look at this. So you're going to have to just tell me, why are you here? (laughs) What are you actually doing here?
2: (laughs) Well, the hunky punks. So we're standing on the aisle roof, and this is as gothic as you get. So we've got flying buttresses here. We've got big clear street windows to allow the maximum amount of light in, the divine light. But you'll notice here, you see the flying buttress at the other end, but there are three missing it looked like they'd just been sort of chopped off. Yeah, exactly. So there are two schools of thought. Either they weren't finished or they were taken down. I don't know which one is correct, but I know that the original roof structure of the nave would have been stone slates, which would have been really heavy, and that's been replaced with lead, which, even though lead is heavy, is actually a lot lighter than the stone slates. So I think once they relieve the stresses and outward pressure on the walls... By replacing it with lead, these flying buttresses would have actually started to push the wall in. So I think they actually took them down to stop the wall between. I mean, this wall is all glass, really, isn't it? It
1: really is. I mean, these
2: are lovely big windows. Mm and at the top of each window you'll see um, the hunky punks that you're keen on
1: yes i love this now you are going to have to explain to our listeners exactly what hunky punks are
2: okay so hunky punk is somerset dialect for a grotesque or a gargoyle so a gargoyle is a method of removing water through holes in the edge of the lead like that it comes from the french for throat to gargle so the gargoyle's move water efficiently down to the ground. But uh, grotesques and hunky punks are there for a non-practical reason. They are apotrophic and they are turn away evil. So this okay. is, you know, we all know about this you know, these days. So it's no coincidence that they are of such a big scale and they are over such a big window. So the bigger the beast, to turn away the spirits, the spirits with evil intent, the higher the their likely success rate.
1: So these look pretty successful to me. I mean, they're, they're kind of yeah. enormous. They're really interesting, aren't they? What's, what are they meant to be? Are they actual animals? I mean, they don't really look just, like dogs. Are they just, just sort of fantasy like, animals?
2: They're fantasy animals, aren't they? They're Muppets. And what's so interesting about them is the whole range of them. You know, that one there's rather, got a rather sort of moving-like head, hasn't it?
1: It does like, huge big eyes yeah. and, and a tongue sticking out.
2: Yeah, its neighbour is rather similar. But its uh, neighbour on the other side... I know all these very well because we've been working on them over the summer because they're in the wrong bedding plane. So a bedding plane is where the sediment within the stone has been led down horizontally. And when it's quarried out, it should be led down in the same way. But these are edge bedded, so they've lifted the stone out of the quarry, carved the grotesque and put it in at 90 degrees. So that immediately exposes the stone as a weakness and the stone starts to come apart like a opening book. So we've put loads of stainless steel pins and filled all the fractures. We've not put any new carved work in here at all. This is all pure lime-based conservation. But this character here, it's like a mother. It's eating its offspring like a ghastly Frankenstein dog. <laughs> and you can see the offspring in mother's mouth. See, its, its hind leg is in its mother's eye.
1: Yeah, and this is kind of fighting back, isn't it? Because we've got these huge, biting. huge big teeth of the, the mother and this yeah. little baby just going, no.
2: But before we managed to conserve and repair these, these were all completely covered in black sulfation. It was like burnt bacon all over. And we had to poultice that off and take it away. And now you can actually see the detail up close. I mean, the characters who made these were absolute geniuses, I think. I mean, it's so creative. I don't think they were making like a clay maquette. They were just cracking on and carving and probably carving in situ.
1: I see, so they're literally made up there on yeah. some sort of slightly more rickety scaffolding than, than yeah, yours, yeah. probably. But I mean, these you can sort of see them from the ground up here, but they're not really meant so much for looking up. Is it that sort of belief in what they were doing that's well, the main reason? you know, that,
2: they always say with grotesques and gargles it's to scare the local population into, you know, believing the good book. But I mean, we come up here, we're not exactly scared, are we? We just want to laugh at
1: them. <laughs> no, they're cute, they're <laughs> so, gorgeous.
2: So I think they had some other purpose, and I think it's no coincidence that. The grotesques on the lower order of windows on the aisle are arranged as a trinity. So there's the big one on the apex of the arch, and then either side you've got two smaller ones. So I think, I don't know, personally, I think that's just uh, symbolic. I've just noticed something I hadn't seen before actually. So, you know, we were talking about these missing flying buttresses. Yeah. Well, I hadn't noticed this lime, this package of lime mortar here that's been led over backs that does suggest that there had been a stone fixed into here
1: okay yeah because this, yeah. Is, so this is we're just looking at one of the sort of cut-off buttresses and there's a big patch of there's a good bit of
2: archaeology there yeah there we yeah. go <laughs> 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 ongoing but you can see it's so perfectly you know that's not been worked over with a trowel that's been pressed in with a stone yeah so there would have been a flying buttress here
1: oh, yeah, that, oh that's fantastic amazing so we've actually solved yeah. or you have solved the mystery um
2: Oh, I'm going to have to think about that more, yeah. (laughs) Perfect.
1: I'm just thinking about these stonemasons. So you're a stonemason. In your work, this is what you do and you've been doing for the last 30 years, which is incredible. So you go and you conserve and repair old buildings. You do... Anything from some of the oldest stonework we have in the country, really, yeah. don't you?
2: And Andy, my business partner, who you met earlier, and I, we've, you know, we've worked on so many fantastic places. I can't believe the career that we've had. And, you know, it's still ongoing. You know, we've worked at the West Kennet Long Barrow, which is the earliest structure with a postcode in England. It's <laughs> is wor-
1: Neolithic, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is, yeah. And uh, that was sealed up by the, when the Beaker people came along. We've worked at the Roman Baths in Bath. We've worked on literally hundreds of medieval churches, Saxon chapels. We worked at the Saxon Chapel in Bradford-upon-Avon, which is a great thing to get to know. What was really interesting about that was they didn't use any lime based technology to bed the stones, they used clay. And uh, when we've worked on adjacent bridges and canal works, all the stone has been bedded in the same way. So there was this sort of continuity... You know, you just if you pull the stone out, you just think it was a load of mud, but it actually smells of the river, and it's still clayey, so it's still doing its job. So when I pulled the stone out of the Saxon chapel, there, I have just knocked up the clay, and bedded it back on, as with that sort of pad of mortar that we've just discovered there on the flying buttress, and then pointed it up with lime. So I, you know, I love that, you know. Builders in medieval times would not have gone to a great distance to get their building materials, unless it was really high status and they were getting stone materials like perfect marble and alabaster, perhaps. Um, But not here. Everything here has come from within 10 miles.
1: So I think that's so fascinating. The fact that the work that you're doing is essentially just carrying on traditions, doing things in exactly the same way that people have been doing, not just for hundreds of years, but actually thousands of years really yes. so I mean do you think that your life as a stonemason is very different as the life of a stonemason in say the middle ages
2: well I'm more aware of health and safety that's <laughs> to be said I mean when the spire collapsed here they just finished rebuilding the spire after it had collapsed for the first time so the second time it collapsed it took the two stonemasons with it and they're buried underneath the north porch oh, right, in okay. an unmarked grave of yeah. course but the tools that I use are the same as a tools that would have been used by Roman stonemasons. You know, in the Ashmolean in Oxford, there's a mason's toolkit from ancient Greece, which is exactly the same as mine. A mallet, a hammer, a selection of chisels, nothing changes. Obviously, we have to use power tools to be efficient, but, uh, you know, I can understand the lives of the people who built this place. You know, even when you look around and you see oyster shells pushed in the joints between the stones, that would have been part of their lunch. And, you know, an oyster shell is a very handy piece of packing material, isn't it? So That's
1: such brilliant insights. But you were that those stone were buried in, in unmarked graves. I mean, is that really the case that like most of the people who worked on this will just be anonymous people yeah. that weren't really remembered?
2: Yeah, I mean, the masters are vaguely remembered, but, you know, there are so many important buildings that we don't know who actually built them. I mean, we would refer to them as architects... These days, but you know, architects are very much a modern concept, uh, 18th-century concept. And before that, it would have been down to the master mason to have designed and put forward their proposal to the client, and you know, in the same way that an architect does.
1: So that would also, in, if we go back to the Middle Ages, that would have been quite a high-status job, would it?
2: Absolutely, yeah. To become a master mason. You know there were lots of different grades. There are images which are carvers who would be creating these. They would be separate from the walling masons who were just you know squaring off the blocks. There'd be the big chief at the top, and you know this applied to both men and women in medieval period. So there you know there are records of female master masons, uh, two of whose name it, it escaped me. But uh, you know, after the Black Death, everyone had to step up. It was all hands to the pump, wasn't it? So uh, there are records of female master masons continuing their husband's businesses and being very well respected for it. Fantastic!
0: Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're gonna be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast. From the Battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11, we reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice
2: a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world
0: to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At
1: the time the weapons were tested, there was this perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue
0: nuclear weapons instead.
1: And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion-dollar wars, or it wants to have nothing at all to do with
0: it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history.
1: So just looking down now and just looking out over the churchyard and the cemetery here and you pointed out, before we started recording when we came in, you pointed out to me that this really is quite a lot higher ground. It's not that many gravestones at the moment, but it's really high ground. And why is that?
2: Well, so this was the mother parish, the mother church of a very large parish. There's a bridge in some fields a mile or so yonder, which is part of a coffin path where the parishioners of West Ashton Village would bring their dead to this churchyard. So this churchyard is absolutely vast. It's over an acre, but you see how high it is compared to the surrounding lane and the pathway over there? So that's just because, obviously, the graveyard is chock full of... Corpses. (laughs) Corpses. <laughs> so this is burials.
1: literally just graves and burials and bones just yeah. building up. I mean, we must be at least one I meter mean, and a half, meter. If
2: you think people have been buried here since Anglo-Saxon times, so say 50 people are buried a year, over a 1,000 years, oh, I can't do the maths off the top of my head, but that's uh, 50,000 people. There are 50,000 bodies in here, which is likely. That's, you know, that's probably a conservative really estimate after the Black Death and the various other plagues that would strike communities like that and uh, snuff them out.
1: Yeah, and of course, you you mentioned that earlier, didn't you, that the Black Death especially had a big impact on the church and the development of it.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. If the Black Death wouldn't have happened, the decorated Gothic period, which was the precursor to the perpendicular, the decorated is all about exuberance, the individual personality of the mason. I mean, these teams of masons that were carving stone in the decorated period, like a school of dolphins, they were so free-thinking and free, you know, they could carve in in a freehand style. But with the Black Death, everyone died, basically, and the masons had to become more efficient. So if you know, if you look at these windows, it became uh, shop work. So it was like a production line to churn out more linear stonework. So if the Black Death wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't have had these bigger windows, these perpendicular windows, and indeed big towers like this. In the medieval period, churches tended to be renovated and replaced every five generations yeah taking that off the top of my head so when the black death came especially in the west country as i say there was so much money sloshing around that people they couldn't build or buy a new church because the church was there so they would stick western towers on the edge of that church so the tower that we can see here it's classic west country church tower a belfry it's about 1470 or something like that so it's about 10 years before this aspect so the development of this church occurred in stages
1: and can we go up the tower
2: yeah do you want to go inside yes. or up our scaffolding well
1: um, <laughs> let's, let's <laughs> have a look
2: so our next job in the spring is to repair these uh, big clear street windows and you can see how you know the uh, mullions go up and then where they split towards the top you see how they're just coming apart there so that's going to fall to the ground soon and they're all smoke-blackened from the chimney fires around here. And that smoke-blackening has a very detrimental effect to the stonework, causes it to blister and pop and fills it full of salts. So the salts crystallise just below the surface, cause it to pop off. So we've got a busy spring here. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, it just, it just really hammers in, doesn't it, no pun intended, how much work it really takes, not just to build them in the first place, but just to make these last for 500 years and more.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty jolly impressive, isn't it? And, you know, I have to say, if the Victorians hadn't intervened, the story might have been quite different. But the architect here was an enlightened Victorian architect. He had a light touch. He didn't scrape all the original wall paintings off the walls. He's kept the stonework pretty much as it was. The new chancellor is sympathetic. But lots of Victorian architects were dreadful, and they would just flatten a church and rebuild it in their own image of the Gothic movement one key fits all
1: huh. oh, another staircase so this is up to the tower, is it? yep,
2: yeah. bigger stairs now
1: that's slightly easier yeah
2: this is how you pick it yeah, oh my gosh, way.
1: I'm quite impressed good for leg day, this oh my god, is how high is this tower? 100 foot 100 foot high, okay it as the number of steps
2: No, by this point I'm bleeding from the ears.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It does feel quite intense. (sighs) Hi, there we are.
2: It's not being out of breath, it's the recovery time that's important, isn't it? Yeah,
1: definitely. (laughs) That was a steep... Oh, and that's the church clock. Yes, okay, so... Up in the tower?
2: Yeah, well, that was quite a climb up the, yeah. up the stairwell, wasn't it? Um, so we have gone past the ringing chamber, where the ringers, you know, pulling their ropes. The ropes come through this chamber, which is the clock chamber, and go up to the bell chamber, which is above us. Look at the size of those oh, wow. pieces of lumber. There's giant
1: big timber beams in there. Yeah. In the roof above us.
2: What's interesting about these beams, that they in turn support, the clock commander pointed out to me the other day, is that the great tenor Bell, that's above us, is bigger than that aperture there. So how do they get it up? How do they get it through there? Well, it came through this trapdoor. You see how this trapdoor is bigger than... Oh that? God, the
1: thing we we're just standing on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: And then he said, "Look, they're on wedges. So these two beams are on a beam that's built into the wall at either end, and they're wedged up. So you just knock the wedges out." And then you can just hammer the beams out of the way to drop or take up a bell. I think that's fantastic. That's really, really brilliant. Hillier, Seen, 1795. So quite a modern roof structure. But yeah, that's got to support yes, many a... tons of bells.
1: This is the name that's carved into the, the huge beam above us now.
2: Yeah.
1: And then what we can hear in the background is the ticking of the, the church clock.
2: I think this is my favourite space in the whole church. When we take on a new church to repair, I always come and see what the clock is like. And um, there's a mention of a clock at Steeple Ashton in the church tower in the 1540s. Oh, that's quite early for the church
1: clock.
2: So I think that this frame, there's a big square frame, big rectangular frame, sorry, it's all blacksmith made, you see the lovely curls on there, even the bolts... That bolting it all together, and the mortise and tenon joint here. This is all blacksmith made. So I think this is the medieval frame, and the inside part of the clock is a bit later, maybe mid 17th century.
1: But that is replacing most likely a medieval church
2: clock. Yeah, That's yeah. quite extraordinary. But I wouldn't be surprised if some of the cogs are medieval. You know,
1: they do look it, don't they? Some yeah. of them are absolutely not new, and. So how unusual would that be in the Middle Ages, in a rural location like this, to have a church clock?
2: Yeah, well, today, one of the jobs that we're doing is re the clock externally, the clock face. We've redecorated it and conserved all the numbers. And there's a shaft that runs from here that drives the hands that tell the time. But originally, this would have been a bell-only clock. So it would have just chimed the hours, chimed the quarter hours, so that the workers in the field knew when to come to church or when to go home or, you know, just one extraordinary scientific instrument to have, probably made by one of the foremost blacksmiths in the region. They had a scientific understanding.
1: Yeah, and that—that I think that point that we were making earlier on when we were looking through that library, that this wasn't just a religious institution, but it was also a sort of gathering point for for lots of people with scientific uh, interest and knowledge and, and sort of sharing that knowledge, presumably, as well.
2: Yes, exactly so. Exactly. So what I like about this is that it's all powered by this. See that massive lump of lead? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like you know, it's the same idea as a grandfather clock. You yeah. Know? Uh, we've got the lead weights that are pulling down, but these are lead weights of a different order, aren't they? Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> really quite enormous.
2: Yeah. So the speed of the pull directs how fast that continues to rock. Uh, so the clockmaker was telling me that the lead weight might be a little bit too heavy. So that makes the clock a bit too fast. So I said, "What do you have to shave bits of lead off the, you know, off the weight?" He, he said, "No. But he's just he's got other adjustments he can make." But
1: yeah. fantastic, isn't it wonderful? It's beautiful,
2: and this lovely cabinet that's in as well. Oh right, okay. So
1: squeezing into a tiny space. All right. Right at the top of the church tower, yeah. these are the bells.
2: These are the bells. Look at this beautiful timber bell frame. It's a real work of art, isn't it? It's incredible.
1: You can yeah. can really
2: hear that? It smells good as well. It does.
1: It smells... Yeah. I mean, this smells ancient. So, but these bells are not
2: medieval. They no, are quite... No, these bells have been recast. They were recast in London in the 1930s. Yeah, so they're quite new. Um, right? But they took a, a copy of what was there before... So they are a very good likeness, but a little bit there. It's what's uh, an enigmatic space with the wind blowing through.
1: Yeah, you can hear this. The sound it's just that uh, the wind is going. Oh my God!
2: So it's uh... <laughs> that resonance.
1: Absolutely
2: wonderful. It's absolutely lovely. Yeah, so we're right at the top of the of the tower, and you can see the openings. So they're flat pieces of stone, placed into the window, and they are to let the sound out, and but also to keep the elements out as well. And that's Somerset tracery. So we're in Wiltshire. So we're right on the edge of Somerset church tower design. And the church towers of Somerset are the best in the country, in my opinion. But then I am I am biased. But if you look just to the right of the windows, you see these arches built into the corner. Oh yeah. Yeah, so this is a design called a squinch. And that suggests that this was once supporting a spire, which it was, because it's Stephen Ashton, you know. So the spire has come down on two occasions, both lightning strikes. But this squinch was designed to support the eight-sided plan of the underside of the spire. So what I find so interesting is that this is a purely Islamic design. So, like I say, these are known as squinches. And this is how Islamic engineers and architects designed the top of a octagon to support their domes. So no dome architecture of Islam, no spire architecture of Gothic England. And you you can see that, you know, the design of those uh, Somerset tracery window openings yeah they've got a, an Islamic touch about them.
1: They really do don't they That's yeah. absolutely the sort of feeling you get from being in space that's incredible. yeah
2: yeah and uh, you know, everywhere I see it, I can see the hand of the hand of Islam at work and that uh, yeah. makes me very you know everything's come from somewhere isn't it even in rural this is as English as you get here so
1: okay this is outside on top of the tower we've climbed right to the top we're looking at the wind. And you can really see how rural this is.
2: Yeah, isn't it extraordinary? And you can see, look how massive Salisbury Plain is. You know, it's just a, a big ridge and plateau that just stretches away. And that would have just been full of sheep. So this church tower we're standing on now was paid for from the wool that came from the backs of those sheep. And yeah, it's nice, the flagpole twitching around in the wind up there. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. But you can really get a sense of, of that, the, all the cash, all the wealth in the rural medieval economy. And this is just, I mean, there's no better place, I, I think, to just demonstrate how that worked.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you can see the um, West Ashton is that village over there. So you can see how big this parish was. You know, we're going just beyond that. And you see those two hedges that zigzag across... Oh, yeah. That's the coffin path that stretches all the way to West Ashton.
1: Right, so that's where they would come with all the, the burials yeah. to come
2: yeah. up to the church. So uh, when the parish was reduced in size, there was obviously going to be resistance because the incumbent was deriving a fair income from all the outlying villages, bringing their dead for burial and charging an appropriate fee for that. Ah, so, uh, OK. Yeah, so there's, so there's lots of you know, This place isn't just making money on the backs of agriculture and commerce. It's making money on the backs of their parishioners as well. Literally on their backs. when so <laughs> yes. they're carried in. What I like uh, especially, this is very personal to me. See the airfield there? Yeah. That's Kievel Airfield, and that was a Polish resettlement camp just after the war. Um, And that's where my father came.
1: Oh, is that right? Is your personal family connection to the place?
2: Yeah. So, like, to get this job, we've worked at Kievel Church, which is just on the other side as well. So, uh, yeah. Fantastic. So you, your father was a stonemason as well? Well, he, he was a stonemason for a time, yeah, because he was working as a miner. And too many of his friends were being killed <laughs> after, oh. after the war. Oh, right. Uh, so he was okay. working with Irish, Highland Scots, fellow Poles, Czechs,
1: yeah.
2: Russians. But they were blasting tunnels and people were dying around him. And he didn't like that, so he started life as a granite mason. And we used to go on holiday to Scotland, where he was working on these hydroelectric schemes.
1: Yeah.
2: And he'd say, look at that, son, I built that it'll last a million years and you know what because it's granite it'll probably last ten million years yes, you know it's going nowhere true. so I like the permanency of that
1: yeah that's a lovely thought that's but lovely. working
2: granite compared to this bath stone is a different yeah different, I can
1: imagine this is a
2: quite uh, a. <laughs> yeah my, my life's easy compared to this
1: yeah I can imagine Andrew, this has been absolutely amazing. And I I have to say, I do envy you being able to spend all your time in in places like this. But, you know, you've been writing about it. So your one book is out already and is out in paperback, I think, as well. Yeah,
2: yeah, it came out in paperback. It came out uh, the week before lockdown. So, you know, have sympathy for me and buy my book. (laughs) Because it's really good.
1: (laughs) It is really good. I, I have it myself and absolutely recommend it. Because you take people through... Really, the history of stone buildings in this country and and from that personal perspective as a stonemason.
2: Yeah, well, hopefully I managed to tell a new way of telling the history of southern Britain.
1: No, absolutely, highly recommended. Andrew, thank you so much for taking part in Gone Medieval. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here.
2: Great. Thanks ever so much for coming, Kat. Really nice to meet you.
1: So thank you so much to Andrew Siminski, author of The Stonemason, A History of Building Britain. This has been an episode of Gone Medieval by History Hit. Don't forget that if you want more medieval information in your life, you should subscribe to our newsletter, Medieval Mondays. Just follow the episode notes in the app where you're getting this podcast from and you can find out how to do that. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and join us again for the next episode.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash